Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning in this week. Before I present the guest that I have, I want to talk about why I have not been able to put out an episode or episodes throughout August. I was on vacation. I had some things I needed to take care of. And initially, my plan was to still put out episodes every week, but I just was not able to. So August 2nd was the last episode. I apologize. That was not the intention to not put out anything throughout the whole month of August. But things sometimes just happen and there are things that are outside of our control at times. So I do apologize. But with that being said, we're back to normal from today, moving forward every Monday, brand new episode. And we're not stopping. We're not, you know, I know maybe some of you were thinking what's happening as has, has show stop. We're not stopping back to normal. Every Monday, brand new episode, brand new amazing guest. That's it. Done. And uh, also just opened up Substack. So we're going to be sending out email newsletter. Feel free to check it out on Substack or go to my website. It's all there. Let me present this week's guest, Jeff Gordonier. Jeff is a writer, mostly food writer. He is written for Esquire, GQ, New York Times, Fortune, many, many publications. The way he describes food makes me want to eat food that I don't even like. <laughs> he is just amazing with words, really. He's he's just a wizard. Even when we talk in this episode, you'll see like when he talks about certain things, he just the way he describes it, he just talks with such authenticity and, and he like goes into detail and with such passion. He's amazing. He's a wizard with words. So it was a it was an honor to have him on the podcast and have a chat with him. He's also obviously the author of Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. And we talk a lot about what spurred him to write the book. Uh, we talk about Rene Redzepi and Noma, which for those who may not know, the book is partly the book is definitely about that, but the book has another aspect that we discuss on the episode and uh, that Jeff kind of goes into more detail about. We talk about COVID and some of the side effects that are maybe less talked about. And we also cover poetry and creative work and even LinkedIn. Yes, LinkedIn. We cover all those different things. Uh, a lot of fun. I'll be honest, after not recording for, for a minute, I was a little bit nervous. My first one after a few good weeks of, of not recording. And uh, Jeff was just a pleasure to talk to. Just down to earth, funny, great storyteller. So an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as I did. So without further ado, here is Jeff Gordonier. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Jeff, good morning. How are you doing, sir? I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. And that in and of itself is a miracle on some Monday mornings. Uh, yeah. As we were discussing briefly just before we started, I have four children three of whom were here this weekend. And even just two minutes ago, my 15-year-old son, Toby, was sleeping in the bed that's about two feet behind me. 
I urged him to get out of the room so we could do the <laughs> podcast. And I have toddler twins who are three years old who could barge in here at any given moment and destroy your podcast. Um, yeah. I'm looking so, forward to it. I'm, you know, yeah. this is something new. It's uncharted territory. Like, I, I want to see where, you know, how it goes. Think of it as as kind of a you know an Andy Kaufman routine. This is this is this could be just like uh, pure chaos. Like Tony Clifton could barge in at any minute. <laughs> just, just sort of a it, we it, we seek to derail uh, any sort of order. But you yeah. know I, I I love more and more in my advanced age. I love rituals. So I'm sitting here with my cold brew, mm-hmm. which I just drink with no milk or sugar, just straight. straight kerosene like cold brew just get it in my <laughs> veins and lately i've been drinking this uh water with chia seeds in there because okay. i'm told the fiber is good the chia seeds have no actual flavor and they just they develop a kind of gooey sheen around them have you eaten chia seeds before yeah they kind of coagulate and form this like weird uh, texture right yeah see they're kind of floating around like like almost tadpoles, like little yeah. clusters of tadpoles. And um, I, I don't quite know why. I mean, I guess it's supposed to be good for you, but I, I bought some chia seeds at the farmer's market because I like to do that impulsively. And uh, I'm just putting <laughs> them in my water. And it's a little bit like sort of bubble tea for grownups, you know, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no sweetness or anything. It's just, there's sometimes a little crunch when you crunch into them. But like, it's almost a form of meditation for me after a rough weekend with the children to just sit here with my cold brew, my chia seeds, look out the window as I've been looking out the window now for a year and a half, right? Because of the <laughs> yeah. pandemic. I basically, I mean, we went to California, a couple road trips, but for the most part, I look out the same window all the time at the mm-hmm. Hudson River. It's a beautiful view. But I'm getting a little sick of it, man. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, you know, whatever beautiful view you have, whatever beautiful, I don't know, most amazing food you eat, if you do it on a daily basis, eventually at some point you're gonna get sick of it just a little bit. It's funny, yeah, it's really true. I mean, for 30 years of my life, professionally speaking, I was on the road probably every single month. Mm-hmm. I was I was always going somewhere. Now, some sometimes it would be as far away as Korea or Siberia in Russia, um, Patagonia in Argentina, um, you know, Mexico, um, Israel. I've been to to uh, Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it would just be Philadelphia or Baltimore <laughs> or Boston, you know. But I was always going somewhere and it was very nourishing for me. Um, And I think I probably am something of a travel addict. I don't know that I have other addictions besides cold brew. Basically, coffee and traveling are my addictions. And so to not be able to satisfy that that urge is very very hard for me. I mean, there are way more severe problems in the world. God knows this is just a a little um, peevish annoyance in the vast scheme of things. But I, I, I am, I'm longing to travel. Like we just took the kids to California for a couple of weeks to where I'm from, mm-hmm. where my parents live and my wife's parents as well. And um, God, it just felt so good to see something else out the window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
California is completely different. We did a road trip, um, I want to say about two months ago, and we drove oh. to at Oklahoma. No way. Yeah. And it was, and look, I've, I've been in the U.S. now for eight years. I've been talking about a road trip for eight years, and I've never <laughs> done one. So this was my first time. And we, you know, we did a few stops along the way, Ohio, St. Louis, and then Indiana. Yeah. Where else? Um, on the way back, uh, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. It was honestly so much fun. It was much more fun than taking a plane, arriving somewhere, yeah. going to the hotel, a completely different experience. You get to meet people, you get to see places you wouldn't see if you, if you take a plane. And I just had a blast. I had so much fun. Now, I'm curious, why did you choose Oklahoma as a destination? Well, we had a wedding out there and oh. we have two dogs and we kind of we didn't have who to leave them with. And we were just like, you know what? It's a good opportunity. Like wedding out there, the dogs, we know they, they have to come with us and let's just do like a trip. Which place was your favorite? Ooh, good question. Um, it might have to be Tulsa. Ooh. Tulsa was amazing. Like completely unexpected. Wow. I've never even been to Tulsa. I've been to Oklahoma City, but I haven't spent that much time in Oklahoma. It's one of those states that... Um, that kind of calls to me because I don't know much about it. Like I, I've probably been to 45 of the 50 States, but the ones that I haven't been to or haven't spent much time in. What are the five that you haven't? I've never been in Nebraska. It might be six. I think it's Nebraska, Iowa, the Dakotas, both the Dakotas, um, Alaska and Wyoming, I believe. Um, I've been to Idaho, Montana, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, of course. All, all across the South, I've been every state in the South and every state in New England. Um, you know, it's funny, man, because actually for when I was at Esquire, I left Esquire uh, about nine months ago, I guess, eight months ago. And um, I used to travel around the country to scout out the best new restaurants in America yeah. and to scout out the best bars in America. and. Uh, sounds like a dream. And in many ways it is, <laughs> but uh, let me tell you the, the travel gets you. Sometimes it can be pretty, it can be pretty brutal mm-hmm. to go to a different city every single day and eat like nine meals in each city and then catch another plane, leave the hotel at four in the morning. It, it catches up with you at least when you're in your fifties as I am. But the state I was about to go to was Nebraska. I was just, I was actually planning because I had not been there. I was planning to go to Omaha and Lincoln and drive around Nebraska yeah. uh, and possibly Iowa and visit these states that I hadn't been to for restaurant scouting, food story scouting. And then pandemic hit. I, my last trip before the pandemic was I went to Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio. Um, I have to say Cleveland sucks. I'll be honest. Oh. I, I don't like saying like bad things usually. Oh, dude. <laughs> oh, Cleveland? I really? Maybe I stand yeah. in a bad place. Perhaps I just, I don't know. The area we were at, I was like, oh, really Cleveland? I had such high hopes. I don't know. I was, I was a bit disappointed. You next time you go back, let's talk. Did you go to Larder? The, the, no. The, okay. No. Okay. No. Listen, see, just for starters, Probably the most trailblazing Jewish deli in America is lar- is Larder in Cleveland. And really? Yeah. There's an old school one that's quite famous and beloved. I forget the name off the top of my head. But um, but this new one, uh, this guy Jeremy Umansky and um, his whole team 
are pioneering all this sort of fermentation stuff that they bring to the table there. So you're not just getting a delicious hot pastrami sandwich and great pickles, but you're getting all sorts of other things that have been pickled, um, slaws, incredible bread, incredible rye bread, sourdough bread, whatever. It is just a, a beacon. Not not fancy or anything, just like, you know, you wouldn't even notice if you were yeah. walking by. But um, there's some cool food stuff going on. There's also a really great um, uh, Middle Eastern restaurant uh, called Zahoog from um, this chef named Douglas Katz. Oh, Zoog, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I know I'm not saying Oh, that. no, it's a tough, it's a tough one. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I like Cleveland a lot. Yeah, Cleveland, St. Louis. I think St. Louis might have been the very last city I went to, and then I flew back, and then my wife was like, no more travel. And that yeah. was it, you know? Yeah. I mean, not just my wife, but she was um, ahead of the curve, shall we say, on in terms of wearing a mask and wiping down seats and things like that. I was, <laughs> like, I was like, what are you doing? You're just so OCD. This is <laughs> kind of fussy. And it turns out two weeks later, I was like, wow, I guess you read the news. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had the exact same experience. Um, oh my wife initially was wiping down everything. Like we were getting groceries from Whole Foods. She was cleaning the vegetables, the everything, oh like, like everything was getting cleaned. And, and, you know, I'm like, oh, I think this is, you know, this is going overboard. This is a bit too much. Like we can't, we can't, this is no way to live. And eventually, you know, it, it's, it's not sustainable. Eventually it kind of died off. Yeah. But there was definitely a few weeks, if not a couple of months where like everything was getting washed, double washed, triple washed, it's it was too much, but you know I think initially when COVID started, myself included, I think a lot of people thought that brick and mortar was just gone, right? It was something that was going to be a relic, something in the history books, and never to be seen again. And the the more I ate at home, the more we we cooked at home, which was actually really nice, and ordered food. You know, I started to realize there's really nothing like going to a bar with with friends and, and getting that bar vibe or getting a coffee from a coffee shop and, and, and getting those smells in the morning of the pastries and the coffee or same with a restaurant, right? Going to a restaurant, the ambiance, the food, the experience, yeah. the laughing like that you hear. Were you scared initially when all this happened? Because for you, this is is a livelihood, right? Like for most people, it's just just a good time to go out. But, you know, were you scared that you're not going to have that face-to-face and and sit down and have those experiences you've been having for so long? Hmm. I I don't know if I was scared. I wasn't really scared for me. I was scared for a lot of the chefs and restaurant owners and restaurant employees Hmm. and um, bartenders. And I, I was worried for them. You know, I was worried for them in terms of losing their livelihood, and I was worried for them in terms of their health and the the chance that the opportunity just lurking that they could get sick. You know, I, I you know, so I mean, journalists technically are not supposed to be friends with the people they cover, and um, you know, I've always tried to keep some degree of distance. But if you've read my book, Hungry, you know that. Renee and Red Zeppi and I became pretty tight and I traveled around with him. And mm-hmm. the the fact of the matter is that I do know a lot of chefs and restaurateurs personally and, and, and care about them, you know, and care about their, their welfare and their health. So I wasn't so much worried about my own, um, like, how am I going to make a living? Because I mean, for one thing, I was already flirting with the idea of leaving day-to-day deadline food writing behind i was i was already thinking it wasn't a sustainable path for yeah. from the standpoint of health 
Um, um, and I can write about all sorts of things. I, I've over the years written about movies and music, wrote, wrote about mu- music for many years and poetry and uh, politics. And, you know, I can, I could, um, I could pivot. Um, but um, it was more just this kind of itch, you know, like I realized that going to restaurants had become a kind of like a, a rhythm for me. It become like the way a lot of people, maybe people go to rock concerts, people go to Broadway shows, people yeah. go to sports events. They, they, you know, they get season tickets to the Yankees or the Mets or the Dodgers or whatever. For me, it's restaurants. It just is like, I don't, I don't really go to many concerts anymore. Mostly I go to a concert with my daughter, Margot, who's in college and who is a singer songwriter. And she introduces me to a lot of cool new bands, but, um, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to just stand for four hours and like, <laughs> and the noise, the, the, the volume is, is kind of rough on my hearing at this point. And, uh, yeah. so going to a restaurant became over the past decade for me, just kind of, um, entertainment and ritual and, uh, nourishment of more, more than just the food. Like, like to me, I've been in love with restaurants since I was a little kid. Um, and for me, it was always about the theater. It was about the vibe in the room. Like you talk about the ambiances about the music and the lighting and the servers and the, the banter, yeah. uh, uh, it was like going to a Broadway show for me since I was really little. And um, my parents would take me to all sorts of restaurants, sometimes a fancy French restaurant, sometimes um, a classic Chinese restaurant, um, Japanese restaurants, Mexican restaurants, all sorts of things, particularly when we lived in Los Angeles. And our staples in Los Angeles were probably mostly, you know, Thai food, Chinese food, Mexican food, Korean food, um, not so much you know, like Italian food. I mostly had Asian and Mexican food when I was growing up yeah. in terms of going out. And so learning about those cultures when I was a kid and and um, absorbing the different modes of presentation in each place, you know, it, it just, it, it, it sort of got in my blood, you know? And so it's still there. Like I, I could show you, I won't show you, but I actually have a fridge list still, even though I'm not technically doing restaurant scouting for Esquire right now, mm-hmm. I have a list on my fridge of all new restaurants that I want to go to. There's Cadence, there's Contento, there's Jolene, there's uh, Les Trois Chevaux. Uh, are these all across the country? No, these are in New York. I mean, when I go to another city, I, I tend to want to hit the new places too. But these are all in New York, and I'm gonna, I think tomorrow night, Tuesday night, I have a a free night and I'm going to go check one out maybe with uh, my son, maybe meet up with a friend. Um, I'm thinking of going to Contento, which is a, um, I think it's, it's mostly like Peruvian food and kind of a wine bar in Spanish Harlem. Okay. Um, I live North of the city. So not that far from Harlem, actually, it's very easy for me to drive in or take the train in. So, you know, I'm still doing it when we were in Los Angeles. Um, this in Orange County, Cal, Southern California, the last couple of weeks, um, I, I realized that I didn't have to do new restaurant scouting per se, but I still had this Jones, like this kind of, you know, addicts longing to go to places. <laughs> so, um, and my older kids were with me, Margot and Toby. They have the same thing. I mean, they like to. They particularly really want to go 
out for Asian food all the time, particularly when we're in Los Angeles, because it's just so high quality. Yeah. So I determined that, um, we would go to, um, some of the older spots that are really beloved that it's hard, it's embarrassing to admit, but I'd never been to. So we went to parks barbecue for Korean barbecue. We went to a place called Meiji Simon in Orange County in Costa Mesa for um, handmade Japanese noodles, soba and udon. And we went to a place called sap coffee shop for um, Thai food. Uh, Absolutely incredible place. I mean, you're basically eating in the parking lot under a tarp, uh, and you pay cash. It's a place that Jonathan Gold loved, Anthony Bourdain loved. Okay. Um, it's not a coffee shop at all. I don't know why they call it that. <laughs> no, man, I don't even know they had coffee. I mean, I think they had like Thai iced coffee, but it, beyond that, I didn't really see a coffee menu. They yeah. have they have all these incredible um, Thai noodle dishes and stir fry dishes. And um, man, and also we went to a place called Bar Ama, which is uh, kind of Joseph Centeno's Tex-Mex place downtown. Um, I met up with a bunch of friends who, uh, worked on the show high on the hog on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, good friends of mine produced that. And, um, uh, Steven Satterfield, who's the star of high on the hog. And one of the ho- the host of it is a, is a friend of mine and got to meet up with them for a big dinner. It was really great. So it was kind of cool to go to places that are not new per se, mm-hmm. um, but have new experiences. Um, parks barbecue is just, I, I really can't imagine a way that Korean barbecue could be better. I mean, it was just, it was just perfection. I mean, the, the quality of the meat was really high and, and, um, the quality of the service, the attentiveness, but also the banchan, which are the little side dishes that come yeah. with Korean barbecue. I mean, yeah. they were just all exquisite, just full of flavor. They didn't seem like they'd been sitting around forever. They were like it freshness and pop. And it was just great. You know, no, so amazing. I can't give it up. You hear this? I, I'm, I'm a mess. I mean, I'm, I need to work out. I need to get healthy. I basically stopped drinking. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, not not so not like an AA type thing. Although I would certainly tell you if I if I was going through that. And yeah, um, my nickname among some of my friends is TMI, like too much information. I'll basically tell you anything. You're an open but, book. But, yeah, yeah, right. But um. But, uh, you know, living with four children, two of whom are toddlers, uh, who often wake up at 530 in the morning, it's not advantageous to have a hangover. (laughs) No. It's not advantageous even to be a little sluggish in your brain and body because you had a glass of two glasses of wine with dinner. It just not, it just doesn't benefit you. Like it puts you in a worse mood. Um, Although I will confess that over the weekend they were, they were so challenging. The twins were, were, were really, the tantrums were pretty much nonstop. I mean, when you're dealing with eight or 10 hours of tantrums, it shreds something in your, in your soul. So I did at one point reach into the freezer and get some premium vodka (laughs) and just slurp it and just get a nice fat glass of that. And let me tell you, man, it was just euphoria. I mean, we haven't had a drink in months, and then you just yeah. give yourself some some ice cold vodka. It goes straight to the brain. Oh, wow. yeah. It's orgasmic. <laughs> it, really it really was, and it really helped. It yeah. really helped. It really helped. I don't want to go back to doing it all the time, but uh, I'm going to allow myself that dispensation, that that little uh, that out yeah. now and then. I think it did put me in a better mood, I got to tell you. So I'm feeling good this morning. So I um, believe... 
I think like people, you know, I don't know, you know, different things work for different people. I think once in a while, alleviating some pressure and alleviating some stress with a nice cold beverage of your choice. It doesn't matter if it's a wine, a beer, a vodka, you know, not, not going overboard, but just getting that, uh, you know, yeah. that, like that first sip and your whole body just like, you know, oof, you feel, it's, you feel it leave your body. It's the first sip. You're dead right, man. It's 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 like why I love martinis because a martini is just a silver bullet. You know, it just goes straight to the brain. It's just like the condensation on the martini glass mm-hmm. on the outside. That alone is so attractive. It pulls you in, and then that ice cold slurp, almost flavorless, but then it burns a little. It's just like yeah, I almost only want that. It's like I I want a whole array of first sips. You know, yeah. I mean, maybe that's why I'm I'm constantly drawn to restaurants. It's like I just want first sips and first bites. It's almost like I just want first kisses. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, the same, it's that same kind of uh, excitement rush. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, this is I'm going to tell you something weird, but um, a completely different practice I have for um, centering and calming myself has to do with poetry mm-hmm. and um I have books of poetry all around me right now. I just, Sonia Sanchez's new, uh, there's a big collected volume of Sonia Sanchez's poetry. She's one of my favorites. It's actually upstairs by my bed, but I have the new Jane Hirschfield. It's called Ledger. Okay. I just bought the new August Kleinzoller book called Snow Approaching on the Hudson, partly because of the title. The Hudson is right there. And partly yeah. because it has my blurb on the back. That's my name on the back. There, right. Like I reviewed a different book of his and they put me on the back from the New York times. And I was so chuffed as the Brits say, I was like, wow, I, my name is on this book. But so what I do is often like, um, I find a poem I really like. And like, I like this book, this poem called so by August Kleinzoller. Mm-hmm. I've actually already marked it. And I like this poem called, um, you go to sleep in one room and wake in another by Jane Hirschfield. I've marked those at some point, probably at night. Uh, I will open them, hold them, the books open with a stapler and type the poems into my Gmail just as a way to understand the music of them and, okay. and kind of uh, get to know the poems in a more intimate way. Wow. And, and then I, one by one, I share these poems with friends of mine. It's not like a blast email. It's not a group email. It's, it's individual. It's like a ritual. Like, so I send it to Ian, I send it to Rosie, I send it to Jason, I send it to Tom, I send it to Allison, I send it to Rick. There's a group of old friends. Um, and I've done this for 14 years. Um, at one point it was every single day. What do you find that that helps you with? Like, how how does that center you? It's like a prayer. Okay. You know, it's, it's like a secular prayer. I think, I think I grew up in the church. I grew up quite uh, religious and um, I suspect I'll never really shake that need for some degree of sacredness in my life. Um, I can't quite explain it, but I, 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 I used to meditate and I thought that was absolutely pure nourishment and pure calming. And I don't know why I gave, well, I know why I gave it up. I had all these kids and my practice went to shit, but like, um, <laughs> <laughs> the poems are like they're not about anything and i mean they could be old they could be ancient they could be brand new they could be very experimental um 
the poets can be from any background, certainly backgrounds that are not like mine oftentimes. Yeah. And, and um, I learn about different perspectives through this. Um, but poetry ultimately is just almost about observation. It's about paying attention to all sorts of things in the world, to your mind, to culture, to the world, to nature. And there's something really satisfying about being in touch with that and making it very intentional and really putting in the work. Like, I mean, some of these poems are quite long and I'll type every word, every, I, I do the spacing exactly the same. The, uh, the enjambment is essentially is, you know, exactly the same. And, yeah. um, yeah. And then, and, and my, over my, you know, here's part of it is my friends, it started in, in a way because friends of mine would say, why do you read all this poetry? I'm like, I don't know. It's just, it's like, uh, it's just, it settles me. It, it gives me, it's, it, it's, it's similar to saying a prayer or meditating. And, yeah. uh, and almost every time somebody would say, I don't like poetry. I don't understand it. It's to me just a waste of time. It's just nonsense. And I would challenge them. I'd say, if you give me a week, I can turn you around on that. And they're like, no. And I'm like, eh, let me just send you 10 poems. Mm-hmm. I, I have them in my Gmail. I'm just going to share them with you maybe a couple a day. And if at the end of the week, you still hate poetry, you just be honest. It's fine. No judgment. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's different. Yeah. Um, but I found that all of these friends would be persuaded by my um, pure poetry curation, so to speak. And, um, and a lot of times people just aren't aware of what's out there and aren't aware that there's all sorts of poetry. That's it, all different approaches to it. Voices, some of it is extremely accessible and very relatable to real life, like uh, or you know our day to day life. This person, Craig Morgan, I don't know if it's teacher or teacher. I don't actually know. T e i c h e r. Okay. Uh, I, I have his book, Welcome to Sonnetville, New Jersey, that I bought just because my dad's roots are in New Jersey, and then I bought this book, The Trembling Answers. As you can see, I spend way too much money on it. I shouldn't <laughs> actually buy books, it, but I yeah. do. I actually buy the books. I mean, I might might be the only, I might be keeping the entire poetry publishing business alive single handedly. Yeah. And um, his poems are often about raising children, um, suburban life, marriage, meals, cleaning the dishes. They're about these very quotidian things. And um, if my entire poetry diet was limited to that sort of work it would be boring after a while but that's um one of the poets i've been filtering in lately into my daily poetry delivery service and um i find that people are really responding to his work when i send it out they say wow i can, I can really relate to this you know so do you see yourself maybe doing a poetry book at some point is that like something are you only a a connoisseur of poetry or would you like to get into that as well maybe put out a book or or write some uh, no i won't i don't write any poetry i think no. i've written it i wrote some in college that were fine but um no i review it for the new york times i i have reviewed um august kleinsaller and recently uh jory graham alex dimitrov marcus jackson uh, it's very satisfying to write a poetry review because it's, it's, it's fascinating intellectual exercise for me to um, take something that's ostensibly so difficult yeah. and, um, and make sense of it for the reader and try to convey that 
Uh, it's very different than reviewing a restaurant, which is <laughs> which is just so carnal, right? Like review, I mean, and and so theatrical, and you sort of know that you love it or don't like it, and it's it's kind of a gut reaction. It tends to be pretty um, obvious, almost, right? But but with poetry, like I when I review a book, I try to get the assignment two or three months in advance and then spend those weeks going back to that book over and over as often as possible until I really feel I have a handle on it. Um, very rarely do I then hate the book. I mean, I don't see myself as that kind of poetry critic. I more just want to, um, I guess I seek to in introduce some of these poets to, to a mainstream audience. Yeah. Um, I don't know. No, I, I might write a book about poetry at some point, but, um, I mean, I'm not a scholar. I mean, I'm complete autodidact about this. I did study it a bit in college, but I mean, I, I, I can't pretend that, you know, I have a leg up on any of the professional critics or professional poetry scholars. I, I, I've just been reading it since I was 16, 15, 14, maybe. Um, um, and I've read a lot. I will tell you this, that I've probably read more poetry than anyone you will ever meet. I, I, I mean that. I mean, like, I, I can stump some of these professional critics and academics. I have had conversations with them and they're like, I don't know that person. I don't know that person either. I've never heard that poet. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> come to my house, come to my basement. You will be amazed. There are hundreds of books and I have read them all. Not every single page, but I yeah. have, I have absorbed poems in almost every single one. It is, it is, it is a, uh, an amateur practice for me that I'm sort of proud of. I mean, my life was changed a lot when I was like probably 14 or 15. I wandered into a bookstore in Pasadena, California, where my family lived. And mm -hmm. um, I picked up a book by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. It was called Endless Life. Do you know who Lawrence Ferlinghetti is? No. Well, he was, re he recently died. He was 100 or 101 years old. He, he lived that long. Uh, which was remarkable. And he was based in San Francisco. He started a bookstore called City Lights and a publishing company called City Lights. And he published a lot of great people like Frank O'Hara's Lunch Poems he published. But he also, um, he published Howl by Allen Ginsberg. Okay. okay, which you do know that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Howl's sort of one of the most controversial and trailblazing poems of American history and um, was deemed obscene. Uh, there were there were um, there were efforts to censor it and uh, keep it from publication. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti um, was at the forefront of fighting that battle with the ACLU, I believe, and uh, a civil liberties battle about getting this book on shelves and making sure that this significant literary event was uh, accessible to people. So he's a hero in that regard, and um, he was also a poet uh, on his own. And I, I, his poetry. Um, is very, how would I put it? Populist, I guess, easy to understand, a little bit goofy, maybe best suited to teenagers. I mean, I don't, a lot of people who are really immersed in the world of poetry um, maybe respect Lawrence Ferlinghetti as, as a figurehead and as a pioneer, but maybe don't love his poetry. They see it as a little juvenile, right? Yeah. But um, when I was 14, 15, whatever, I picked up this book and it changed my life because I, I grew up in a very conservative environment, very religious, very politically conservative. And um, 
rigid, I guess you would say. And when I saw the, the, you know, he was one of the beats, basically one of the beat poets. And when I saw these the actual words leaping around the page, like not the punctuation either missing or very unusual, that breaking all the rules, um, yeah. I was enraptured by it. I was mesmerized just by the fact that he was doing these crazy things with words. And I mean, crazy to a, to a kid who had never been exposed to this. And um, I couldn't get enough of it. And it dovetailed with punk rock. For me, it dovetailed with uh, indie film. There was a famous theater called the Rialto in Pasadena where they showed, you know, they'd have Rocky Horror pictures. Yeah, yeah. A lot of French films and Italian films and David Lynch films, experimental films. So I'd go there. I'd go see punk bands. I saw The Clash at the Hollywood Palladium when I was 14. And all of this kind of opened up a world of... um, art and rebellion to me that I hadn't really thought of or been aware of. I I probably would have been some corporate lawyer had this not been introduced to me. (laughs) Um, So um, maybe that would have been, maybe that would have been easier, man. I don't know. Maybe I should be mad (laughs) at the friend friend who introduced me to Iggy and the Stooges because like I, I, I ended up going down this more, you know, I don't know, Anthony Bourdain-ish path because of all that. And um, and Jonathan Gold, I, I should say also, you know, because so food was part of it too. I mean, poetry, film, punk rock, but also the LA food scene was like, it, it changed my consciousness. Because I, at the time I was a kid in Los Angeles, teenager, you know, you started reading Jonathan Gold and Ruth Reichel. Mm-hmm. Um, both legends now of uh, American food writing, but they um, they were working in LA at the time, and they were writing about places like Sap Coffee Shop and Parks Barbecue and um, sushi places and taco trucks. And you know, you have to remember this is pre Google. This is before the internet, right? Like you couldn't just go online, go to Eater, and figure out where to get you know incredible boat noodles yeah and then find out you should go to sap coffee shop you couldn't do that then i mean you you'd have and particularly at 14 15 i didn't even have a driver's license right so (laughs) it's like um start starting to read the los angeles times and the la weekly and learning that right up the hill if i kept going up allen avenue right up the hill i'd hit this armenian neighborhood and there was incredible middle eastern food up there Mm -hmm. so this direction monterey park incredible chinese food um, Highland Park, incredible Mexican food, really, really close to where we lived. And, um, you know, as soon as my friends start getting their driver's licenses, we would, we would go to punk rock shows downtown or in Hollywood. And then we kind of strategize where we we're going to eat Yeah, as well. And, and that was a huge part of it. And, you know, for a very sheltered white kid from Pasadena, it was just, um, a revelation for me to realize that the city was full of this multicultural bounty of beautiful food. Like it was just, it's an education, right? So it was all, I, I'm sorry to be keep babbling, but it was all, it was all part of this same like evolution for me. And, and I think for a lot of people, I, I maintain that Jonathan Gold and Ruth Reichel with their writing really sort of transformed Los Angeles. They kind of helped introduce Los Angeles to itself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the people in Koreatown, um, we're aware of all the wonderful things going on in Koreatown, but it was now sort of like 
all the different neighborhoods got to meet each other a little more. Uh, it was more like the neighbors come out of their houses and say, Hey, nice to meet you. And we yeah. all start to get to know each other and um, through food. So, yeah. um, you know, it was really an exciting moment. Ruth Reichel ended up going to the New York Times, of course, and then Gourmet Magazine and became a best-selling author. I'm actually doing a talk with her uh, on September 12th at uh, up in Hudson Valley. So um, nice. this is one reason she's on my mind because I'm rereading all her books. Yeah. So, hey, but, you know, when you when you talked earlier about um, about restaurants and about food, there's a, a passion and authenticity in which you describe things that, you know, the average person, they go to a restaurant, how's the food? Oh, you know, food was good. Yeah, I liked it. Oh, you know, no, the, the steak was good. The, the dessert, mm, delicious. But you really, like, the, the words kind of jump off the page when you describe. <laughs> and I think that it's like people like yourself are almost as important to just, for example, like food shows as the chefs that, you know, make the food because, for, you know, for the untrained person, someone that doesn't really know too much about food, all I know is it's good food. It looks nice. But when you describe it, when you put poetry to it, when you put the descriptions to it, the flavor, like the the, the verbal flavor to it, it adds a whole new meaning to these shows. And I love and it's true for not only for, for shows, it's true for, I don't know, you know, documentaries and biographies when there's people who really know how to explain what's happening. I think that's just as important as, you know, what's happening. Wow. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I think that a lot of that is the influence of people like Jonathan Gold and Ruth Reichel and Anthony Bourdain and um, so many other writers who made me aware of the, I mean, actually I was doing this before Bourdain really, but I mean, um, and I don't think I'm, at all a similar writer to him, but I've been rereading a lot of his stuff too. And, and it really has to do with that vibrancy and that capturing the life of things. You know, I, I feel like that's my friend, Steven Satterfield, who's in high in the hog and also runs Whetstone magazine, Whetstone media. He's, he, he often talks about the power of stories and who owns the stories, who tells the stories and how expansive that can be you know how like consciousness raising that can be and it, it's absolutely true and you know like when i when i have been drinking and i go out and um i meet a sommelier who um can really tell a story about the wine right like pascaline yeah. lepeltier or Jorge riera who's at frenchette um Jorge, he won't just like open a bottle of wine and start pouring it. He'll start telling you a story all about it. Like this is from the Canary Islands. And they build these little stone walls to surround the vines because the wind is so fierce. And the stone blocks the wind. But it, there's, there, there's the sea wind coming in. And, and I mean, he'll just, I, I can't do it. I don't know enough about it. But when he starts talking or Pascaline starts talking, um, Madeline Maldonado at Ta da Toscano in the West Village, the same thing. I, I suddenly really want that wine. Yeah. And, it, it, and then and it's not just that I want it, but then when I taste it, it seems like I'm making contact with that story. I'm tasting some of the things they, they kind of persuaded me to be aware of and open up to. And that's what a lot of good food writing is about, you know, um, I mean, that's what makes uh, Tejo Rao at the New York Times so great and Pete Wells and um, 
Soleho at the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. It's, it's, I mean, it's that vividness is making you understand what story is being told here. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny though, because like, like my book hungry came out a couple of years ago and it continues to click along, continues to sell, which is nice from what I'm told. And I, I mean, every day almost on Instagram, someone DMS me about it or posts it about it. Sometimes people in the UK, people in Spain, people in India, you know, cause there's, there's different versions of the book out there. Yeah. And that's very satisfying. Um, but every now and then I'll talk to somebody and they're like, you know, I'm an incredible foodie. I mean, you, you can call me a foodie for sure. And I've never heard of this guy, Rene Redzepi or this restaurant. <laughs> no, no. And you know, you ain't a foodie then. I'm yeah. sorry. Like, I mean, if you never even heard of Noma, I think you're kind of full of shit if you call yourself a foodie. And I, but, but, you know, this is the way in which that word has become a kind of blanket, like a reflex for people. Yeah. You know, Every, everyone's a foodie now. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. cause they, cause they, they, you know, are aware of a really good Chinese restaurant two towns away from where they think they're they qualify as foodies and i'm I'm really not i'm really not a snob about it as you can probably tell the kind of places i'm talking about and the places i go to um it's just that i i I cringe uh a little at the the artificial reflex of that and it's like make the commitment you know what i'm saying like i mean (laughs) like what do you mean if you've never heard of Gabrielle Hamilton Prune or Dominique Crenn. I mean, this is another, I was talking to somebody at some point in California who was like, Oh my gosh, am I a foodie? You, you've never met a foodie like me. I just, you know, and I'm like, yeah, well, where do you eat New York? And it was just a listing of the most banal, obvious (laughs) places. Like, I mean, Times Square Theater District kind of no. really that's where you eat like well where should I eat you know well I mean you know in a, in a perfect world when everything's open and, and and the pandemic isn't happening I mean I would make a beeline to the East Village and eat at Prune uh, Gabriel Hamilton's place Prune never heard of it and you're like okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> wait so you like. So, so, so you brought up um, your book, Hungry. I yeah. uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about it, what, I guess, what spurred you to to write? And I, it was your second book, right, Hungry? Yeah, then, second book I wrote, I did do another book that I edited with Mark Weingarten that's called um, Here She Comes Now. It's a collection of essays about women in music. Okay. Um, and the essays are written by, you know, a range of different people. So, yeah. So if you could talk a little bit about what spurred you to write the book and then also for the for those foodies who may not know who <laughs> Rene Redzepi is, uh, maybe like explain a little bit who he is and what Noma is. And, you know, for, yeah. for those uh, for those foodies. Yeah. You know, I, I shouldn't be smug because the fact is, like, I probably should have done a better job of explaining it at certain times. So. Um, Rene Redzepi lives in Copenhagen. His restaurant Noma is in Copenhagen, Denmark. And it is widely seen, often described as the best restaurant in the world. Mm-hmm. And that is partly attributable to a kind of dubious, potentially bogus survey kind of thing, like almost a, a, an awards thing that used to happen every year. I don't know what's happening now. 
but it would name the best restaurant in the world. It was like the world's 50 best restaurants. And for a while, it was the French Laundry in Napa Valley, California. Thomas Keller is the chef there, obviously kind of a legend. And then it would move. Then at a certain point, it moved to El Bulli in Spain, run by Ferran Adria, where it pioneered that what came to be known as molecular gastronomy, sort of sci-fi, mad scientist type food. Yeah. And at a certain point, actually, um, I think it was exactly 10 years ago, and I believe it was 2011, suddenly this weird place, Noma in Copenhagen, was named the best restaurant in the world and actually was named that four successive times, or maybe not consecutive, but at least four times. Um, Rene Redzepi is the chef there, and he instantly became a figure of um, fascination, obsession around the world. Noma is a restaurant where uh, they're always, always changing the menu. Okay, so it's very much about nature, and it's very much about the rhythms of nature and the, the fact that change is embedded into the into nature itself. Um, and I don't mean just the seasons, although that's a huge part of it, but um, all sorts of sort of micro fluctuations. So foraging is a huge part of the menu at, at Noma. They forage all around the Danish landscape. And fermenting, they ferment all sorts of things. I mean, they're experimenting with fermentation all the time. At one point I was there and they had, I believe it was a wild boar pancreas they were fermenting. Yeah, they ferment duck feathers. And some of the experiments don't work and other experiments work tremendously and they're gloriously delicious. Uh, They also incorporate insects into the meal. Um, Everything from honeybee larvae to ants. Um, so, so dude, what's happening when you go to Noma is essentially you're tasting things you've never tasted before. Uh, most of us haven't. And it is extraordinarily exciting in that regard. I mean, it is not the comforts you're accustomed to going to your local dumpling place or, you know, pasta place. This is like, you're, you're going to have your mind blown. Like it's a little psychedelic. You may not actually love every dish. I tend to, and a lot of people do, but maybe you, some things you won't. But you're gonna you're gonna taste things you've never tasted, and that's a rare thing. So, like for instance, you you like mint, I would assume, right? Yeah. Most people like mint. You know, imagine that you'd never tasted mint. Like take take that taste out of your brain, and then imagine that there was a foraged green from the Danish landscape that you tasted in a dish, and you'd never taste, and it was as as striking a flavor as mint, but you'd never had it before. And suddenly you're like, wow. And that is undercut with a fermented garum, which is like a, you know, it goes back to ancient Rome, but a sort of fermented funky sauce that you've also never tasted before. And your palate is just kind of dancing at this experience. Like, and it's delicious. And so it's delicious, but it's also delicious in a way you've never You've never experienced. I mean, you're essentially uh, tasting tastes that your mouth has never experienced before and your brain has never known before. Like, like, you know, you know, the colors in the color spectrum, right? Red, green, blue, yellow, and all the different mergings and whatnot. Imagine there were colors you've never seen just because the way your eyes are wired, you've never seen them and suddenly you can see them. Um, Lee Scratch Perry, probably the greatest reggae record producer of all time. Absolutely trailblazer and genius just recently passed away. Um, and a lot of what people talk about with 
with Lee Scratch Perry is that, you know, he was able to devise ways of hearing that we had never experienced before. He somehow manipulate the studio and musical instruments and um, the textures of sound to create these sonic landscapes that were absolutely mesmerizing and new. It's yeah. a similar thing um, with Noma. So long story short, um, I got to know Ren Renee Redzepi. I wrote about him for T Magazine and the New York Times back in 2014, I guess, and uh, traveled through Mexico with him. He's also obsessed with Mexican food and Mexican flavors, as am I, and Mexican traditions. And so it led to the fact that he was going to do two, well, at least two major things. He decided he was going to close Noma, the original one, and move it to a new location, a, mm -hmm. a high risk personally and financially and everything. And he was also going to take the entire Noma team and recreate the Noma experience with indigenous, with local ingredients in Mexico, in Japan, and in Australia. Yeah. Just kind of high wire, uh, you know, adventuring, like, like, like creatively and financially, this is risky things to do. Um, which is usually synonymous with, with, you know, geniuses, geniuses and risk taking is usually pretty synonymous. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's like, you don't have to keep pushing. You can fill this restaurant till the day you die based yeah. on its reputation. And yet you decide to close a restaurant, move it to a new place, move the entire team to Sydney, move the entire team to Tulum for months and spend years, actually years exploring Mexico thinking about flavor, getting to know local chefs, getting to know local ingredients, and thinking about ways to essentially compose uh, almost a symphony based on those things. And um, so I, I thought this was a book, right? I thought that this figure who seemed of um, prom great prominence and influence in the world of food was, was suddenly taking on all this risk. And that, was, that had the element of drama you want in the book. At the same time, my own life was changing. I, the, the week I met him, I'd actually moved out of a house where I lived with my first wife and my two older children. I was in the midst of a divorce and um, vulnerable, perhaps, in that regard, and in, in a place of confusion and sadness. As, as you know, you you can't get through that without some suffering. I'll tell you that much. Um, so I actually intended, I decided working with my editor, Tim Dugan, I decided to put myself in the book in a more overt way than I normally would and talk about those transformations in my own life. Mm -hmm. So the book is largely about risk and it's largely about change and how we have to take risks in our lives and we have to continue to change and continue to open up. Uh, in some ways, it's not really a book about food. Um, it's about the creative process and how we get through life. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, actually revisiting these Ruth Reichel books, I just finished re revisiting comfort me with apples. One of her memoirs last night, I'm about to get into garlic and sapphires. And it's interesting because I think subliminally she would, must've been an influence on me because she, she does the same thing. I mean, she is writing about food and writing about restaurants and cooking and stuff, but she's also really writing about her own life. And beautifully so, captivatingly so, very accessible, but also poetic. And I'd forgotten, you know, that I'd read these books and, they, and it must have kind of planted a seed without my thinking, without my kind of realizing it. And then it blossomed in, uh, in the form that Hungry took. So it's sort of memoir, it's sort of a port, piece of portraiture. Um, 
I'm proud of it. It's it's an unusual book. I mean, I do think that sometimes I, I talk to booksellers when I wander into a store and they're like, we didn't know where to put it. Should it be in the food section? Should it be in the memoir section? Yeah. <laughs> Should it be in the narrative nonfiction section? And I'm always like, yes. Oh, yes to all. <laughs> yeah. buy, buy many copies and put them in every section. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, uh, it's quick read too. I mean, I spent four years following Renee Redzepi around, but I ended up writing a fairly short book because I, I just think that's, um, that's a reaction to the world we live in. You know, we're always distracted. I'm always picking up my phone, looking at Instagram, mm-hmm. dealing with my kids, dealing with, with the news, dealing with bills and crises and, the, you know, the toilets clogged and all sorts of stuff. It's hard for me to get through a long book. I'm just being completely honest with you. Yeah. Um, a ver- that's one reason I read poetry, probably. Poems are often short. Um, I love carrying around a paperback that's I can stick in my pocket. I can pick it up and read it on the train, read it while I'm sitting in the post, the line at the post office, but a big thick volume is just difficult with my. It, it my looks attention. daunting when you see like a big book, like a 600 page book or something, you know, I have a couple of those upstairs. I've been sitting there for, <laughs> for a minute and um, it's yeah. daunting, man. Like I, I don't, I, I just can't get my myself to get into that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, totally. I admit, I admit to that myself. I think that's realistic. And and uh, every now and then, it's extraordinarily satisfying and enlarging to one's being to 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 absorb an entire long book like that. But it just doesn't really dovetail with the reality of my life, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, a lot of times, I get emails from people or DMs from people where they're like, "Wow, I loved Hungry, and I actually finished it. I read the whole thing. I read the whole thing in three days." And I'm like, "Awesome! It, it's very." <laughs> Gratifying. Like they were surprised they finished it. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> literally. I mean, they're like kind of shocked. They shocked themselves that they finished the book. <laughs> and I, I wanted you to finish. I want you to finish the book. I want you to feel pulled along all the way through it and not bored. Um, and as a way, as a result, it's very compressed in that in that regard. I mean, like I have um, what's it called? How to Change Your Mind, Michael Pollan's book on uh, psychedelics. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I have that. I have not read it yet, but I have dude, it. Dude, this is the thing. I've I read about a third of it, and I thought it was extraordinary. I think he's just a gift to us. He's a he's a brilliant writer, a brilliant yeah. thinker, and seems like a lovely man. And um, I mean, I loved his book, The Botany of Desire. It had a huge influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never disliked the book on psychedelics, but I about a third of the way through, it's I big. got. Yeah, I got hit with some family stuff and I left it there. And when I picked it up again, I couldn't remember where I was. So I just yeah. stopped. <laughs> which is which, by the way, is why I love podcasts. Like I, I actually listened, I think, to if not the whole podcast and like 80% of the podcast that he he was on Joe Rogan. Mm. And you know, it, it was beautiful to listen to. So, and it's very intimate, right? It's like, we're sitting, we're listening to this like conversation happening between two people. It's almost like you're eavesdropping into a conversation. And, um, but the book it's, that's like, like we said earlier, it's, it's much of more of a daunting task. It's, it's a really big book. So that's why podcasts I think are, are not a gateway necessarily, but it's, it's kind of a bridge maybe. Yeah. Yeah, de- definitely. It's also like you can be mobile. Yeah. With a podcast or an audiobook, of course. But like 
uh, I find a lot of my friends in, in California listen to tons and tons of podcasts because they're on the road so much. They're stuck in traffic all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're going for a walk or you're on the Peloton or you're, you're stuck in traffic, whatever, you know, podcast is a great way to keep your mind <laughs> active, you know, um, and, and, and learn something, you know? So, um, yeah, it's funny. I, so, I anyway, I, I think that I, I can't really envision myself ever writing a really long book. And a lot of the authors I love, um, you know, like Graham Greene, I, I, I always loved, um, Graham Greene and I, and I feel like his book, like a book, like the quiet American, which is so profound. It tells us so much about um, the mistakes made by, and we're seeing these mistakes again in Afghanistan. You know, I mean, a book like The Quiet American is very um, relevant, very germane to, to what's going on still and probably always will. I don't know. But I think that book is 120 pages. In paperback, I mean, maybe 140. I mean, it's not long. You can read it in a couple of days. Yeah, that's cool. And, 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 it's, and it's so packed with um, insight and character development. And I'm not saying Graham Greene is perfect. I think in, in terms of our um, ongoing uh, growth as readers and, and as we, we, we learn more and more and acknowledge more and more where people have blind spots, it's clear that Graham Greene had some, some serious colonialist blind spots yeah um so i'm not saying it's perfect but i do th i do think that uh i find something very attractive about a book that you can read that and and, and keep your focus the whole time you know like really and, and, i mean the great gatsby is not a long book um you know it's it, it's it's a lot of joan didion stuff it's not long so Al alexander cheese uh book how to write an autobiographical novel do you know that book no. Oh my God. It's this collection of essays. It's just one of the greatest, greatest books of our time. Really? And I mean, I, I, I've read it twice. I, I think I'll read it again. It's just, and it's not long. It's just like, yeah, Alexander Chi, C-H-E-E. -E. He is, um, I'll have to get it. Oh my, you should, if you can get him on your podcast, I think he's probably got a lot of asks in his life. Oh no, no. I meant like get the book. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know. But like he, I mean, um, you know, and I, and I think I was drawn originally. Um, I've been hearing a lot about his writing and, mm -hmm. and um, was aware of his fiction. But when 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 that collection of essays started getting getting momentum, I picked it up based on what I'd heard, and I also noticed that it was portable. You know, it was the kind of book you yeah. could kind of carry around easily. Yeah, so. <laughs> not 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 like a gym workout. We have to carry around this massive uh, book. I, I, I want to ask yeah, you a question. It may, it may be that I'm just saying I'm lazy. Only thoughts. <laughs> no, I think our attention spans are just just a little bit shorter nowadays than than perhaps they used to be. Um, I want to ask you a question that you probably get pretty often about uh, you. So you were on Chef's Table. Um, on yeah. The, uh, uh, Jin Kwan episode. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Jin Kwan. Yeah. Jin Kwan. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, what was that experience like? And can you perhaps tell people that maybe are not as familiar or didn't see the episode, why she's so special? I, I found the, when she was cooking, it was almost like one of those ASMR videos. <laughs> it, was, it was just like, and it's so, it's, it was so different than what you see when you usually see chefs performing, cooking, whatever, because it's intense, loud, fast paced. And this was the exact opposite <clears throat> of all those things. 
I think that my participation in the chef's table episode with John Kwan is one of the most gratifying things I've ever been associated with. And, and it's something I hear about all the time. Um, and I'm proud of that. Um, but mostly just because it drew attention to her and her mode of cooking and her approach to life, her approach to the earth and ingredients. Um, for those who don't know, John Kwan is a Korean uh, Buddhist nun. She's um, uh, not a chef per se. She's not a professional chef, but many, many professional chefs, including Renee Redzepi of Noma, have made the pilgrimage to meet her and learn from her. Um, and she's got a lot to teach. And her food is some of the most delicious, exquisite food I've ever encountered. So what happened is, I was at the New York Times and a chef named Eric Repair, who's at uh, Le Bernardin in New York City. He was Tony Bourdain's like best buddy. Yeah. Eric sent me an email like, I've invited you to this uh, lunch that's being uh, put on by John Kwan, who's visiting from Korea. At that time, I would say she was uh, largely unknown to the to most American audience. I mean, I, I faintly had heard of her, but I didn't really know that much about her. This is many years ago, you know, 2013 or something. So you have to understand that it was sort of tabula rasa for a lot of uh, people in food media at that point. He was just like, can you come to this lunch? Yeah. And I was at the New York Times. You're extraordinarily busy at the Times. You're always on deadline. Um, your editors always want something yesterday they want you to you know <laughs> and it's, to be honest it's hard to get away for lunch it was just hard to leave the office it's hard to leave your desk so i was like i don't know i'm just swamped you know had i known i would have uh, been waiting outside the door but at that time i was just like but but eric to his credit he was like listen he called me he's like listen jeff this is this is special and it's the once in a lifetime opportunity and I want you to be there. And that's why I made the effort. And uh, she served this, this um, with her team, she served this meal in a, a sort of a private room at Le Bernardin. And there were a bunch of different food media people there and other, maybe some chefs and whatnot. I don't really remember. And I was floored. I mean, it was as good as Noma. It was as good as Benu in San Francisco or Atelier Crenn. It was, it was just uh and it was vegan, by the way. It was, yeah. you know, she cooks a vegan, uh, she, she cooks from a tradition called temple cuisine, which you find uh, throughout um, Buddhist communities in uh, Asia. Uh, it's particularly um, strong in Korea, this tradition of temple cuisine. It's just a beautiful vegan tradition that goes back centuries. And um, I mean, as soon as the last course was over, I made a beeline to Eric Repair and I was like, I'm going to Korea. <laughs> we are going to Korea. He's like, I knew you'd respond that way. He's very smart. I and mean, Renee Rezepi is like this too. They sort of plant the seed and then let it blow. He was like, I knew you would feel that way. And I was like, this is one of the most extraordinary meals I've ever had. And, and I feel good. And I just, I want to learn so much more about temple cuisine. So, um, and she doesn't cook with, with garlic, uh, onions. Yeah, chives, that's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She also doesn't use alliums. Yeah. Because of, uh, a certain vein of Buddhist tradition that's, that's predicated on the idea that those ingredients um, sort of summon uh, negative urges in you or something. So um, 
Uh, Coming so, from the Middle East, that's like blasphemous for me. <laughs> hey, man, I had I basically had an onion omelet for breakfast today. So <laughs> I mean, I'm never going to give up garlic and onions. Um, but but so we went. Uh, Eric and I flew to to uh, Seoul, and then we we uh, drove to her monastery, and we spent a few days there. And um, I mean, I can't. I can't understate how beautiful it was. It was, it was, she's an incredible person and she's really profound. We were, you know, speaking through a translator, but um, I just really enjoyed our conversations. And I should tell you also, she's really funny. You know, she's actually really? kind of a prankster. Yeah. She's, she's really, she's got a great sense of humor. Like at one point she said she was, she wanted to serve me and Eric, this uh, very special, um, Korean elixir that's that's rare that Westerners rarely try, and she was just going to give it to us, and we were like, "Oh my gosh, yeah, of course, this is amazing." Yeah, and and we start sipping it, and it tastes curiously familiar, and I'm like, "Huh?" And then she started laughing. It turned out it was just cold brew coffee because <laughs> she had heard me say that the only thing I missed was my cold brew. Like I said, yeah. I. And she was, she, they had actually gotten some cold brew or made some or something. And she was like tricking us. Yeah. Um, she, she, she's, um, she's great. And, you know, her cooking is all about the earth and almost everything she uses comes from the land around the monastery or, or on, on the monastery ground. She has this garden. So you have some ingredients that are extraordinarily fresh, right? It might be like a, a leaf or vegetable, a chili that's just been plucked literally just i mean i was with her and she would pluck it from the garden walk up to the outdoor kitchen um and sort of take some rice that had put, been cooked inside um bamboo and put that rice inside the leaf and then put a like a brushing a, a swath of this incredible donjang um or soy sauce like a fermented bean paste like donjang or yeah. or um um, soy sauce, sometimes these, these, uh, soy sauces that have been, they've been on these Buddhist monastery grounds for a hundred years. Okay. Like, really? The, yeah. The monks and nuns are custodians of these sauces for, for decades and they just age and become deeper and richer over the decades, these sauces. So, so my point is you're getting something very fresh right from the garden, like super new, just born essentially. And something that's could be a century old and is almost almost definitely at least 25 30 years old together and something happens with it it's like a kind of alchemy it's just it's just deep and beautiful so it's super fresh and super funky um and then so i wrote about it from the new york times this is what a lot of people don't know is i actually wrote about john kwan for the new york times first and then um david galb and the folks from uh Chef's Table came to me and they just decided to do an episode about Chung Kwan for Chef's Table. So um, they went to Korea. I didn't actually go to Korea for the Chef's Table. I went to Korea for the New York Times article. And then they interviewed me about her later. You know, oh, okay. so, yeah, but I still hear about it all the time. I mean, like, I mean, it's a great show. It's amazing. You did. a Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll hear from people that they watched it 30 times and stuff, you know. I literally hear that. I've watched it 20 times. It's like a prayer for me. That's incredibly gratifying. I, 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 um, you know, I, um, I was walking through Grand Central, the train station here in Manhattan a few years ago, and 
a young man came up to me and wanted a selfie with me because like I had been in the John Kwan episode. (laughs) Jeff Staples, the only time I think anyone's ever asked for that. Um, And it also was surprising to me, you know, I had grown up, um, like I said, I, I, I grew up fairly uh, religious and I guess I've always had some element of the seeker to me. Sounds cheesy, but there's something to that. And um, I spent a lot of time in Laguna Beach, California, where there's actually a Hare Krishna temple. And when I was younger, I would go there for free vegetarian food. Um, And um, I have I wrote about uh, mindful eating at a Buddhist monastery up in um, upstate New York in the Catskills, I believe, for the New York Times. And my first wife, actually, one of her aunts, two of her aunts were nuns, Catholic nuns. And um, so they had monastic cuisine when we would visit the monastery there. And it was often vegetarian or ve- mostly vegetable based. And um, at all these different places, um, the food was not great. <laughs> <My experience, laughs> that's not, that's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what I'm saying is that like... I, I, I think I wasn't entirely prepared for how incredible John Kwan's food was because my experience with monastic cuisine from a Catholic tradition or a, a sort of American Buddhist tradition or, or Hare Krishna tradition, I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't uh, great. Well, you weren't really, you know, responding to the gastronomic excellence per se. It was, yeah. it was, it yeah. was fuel. It was just, it was fuel to get you through the day and to get you through meditation perhaps or... Um, a day of prayers at a Catholic monastery. So, so this was like, it was interesting to taste something that comes from a monastic tradition, but is as exciting in terms of flavor and texture as anything at a Michelin starred restaurant. That was what floored me, you know, like they they actually care that it tastes good, (laughs) Um, you know, and it, and, and which is not necessarily true at every Catholic monastery you go to. I will, I will tell you, um, yeah. You know, so, uh, um, anyway, I, I would assume most of these, yeah, most, uh, religious institutions are not exactly culinary, um, hubs, you know, they just want to make yeah. food for you to eat, yeah, full, get full and go on and I don't know, do your prayers or <laughs> read the yeah. Torah or whatever it is that you need to do there. Yeah. It, that's probably indicative of most, uh, you know, religious institutions. So th- this was so interesting that it, that it, um, I do think there are some examples though. I mean, I, uh, for instance, the, the shakers who are, um, um, somewhat enigmatic and fascinating religious tradition here in the U S, um, had an apparently an amazing, uh, culinary, um, uh, tradition that was, that was baked into their, their practice, their, their mode of worship. And in fact, the, um, Jody Williams and Rita Sodi, the chefs from Via Carota, one of probably my favorite restaurant in New York City, are opening a shaker restaurant. Really? Yeah. Isn't what that strange? What kind of food is that? Well, it's just like really earthy kind of American farm to table cuisine, I guess you would say, like, you know, a blueberry pie, um, you know, um, a chicken pot pie. I, I don't, I don't really, I was reading something about it in the wall street journal. Yeah. I haven't been there yet, so I don't really know, but I think it's like, it's like, you know, the original, um, 
a farm to table farm to table as a phrase now makes everybody it's, cringe but but you know yeah. it's sort of a, a meaningless phrase it's, it's like natural food or something uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah half the stuff in the supermarkets farm to table and natural just all these buzzwords that essentially mean nothing yeah but the shakers you know like they, they believed in i mean it sounds like a pretty cool uh way of looking at the world and way of worshiping because apparently they cared a lot about the land and how they grew grew food and the the integrity of what they ate and the deliciousness of what they ate and they really loved dancing. They would have lots of dancing, which is I think why they were called shakers. I, I I'm speaking <laughs> completely sense. amateurishly now, so I hope none of your listeners come slag with me. I don't know yeah. that much about it, but what I do know is that the shakers were um, they also practiced celibacy. Hmm. Okay, so that's a huge challenge when it comes to keeping your religious, your religion alive, because you're not Very making true. new shakers. Correct. So like, <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so I think there are only two practicing shakers around right now. Oh, and then they're going to be the, the last two. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody else might decide to be one. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but you don't necessarily come through, come to it through family. Right. So um, I see. Because, so they have to convince you to become one rather than create new ones. Yeah. <laughs> and, and celibacy is, you know, is a tough sell. So uh, <laughs> like it is. on the one hand, we have the good food and we have the dancing and we, you know, on the other yeah. hand, no more, sexy, no more sexy time for you for the rest no of your life. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, my friend, Rosie Schaap, she's a good friend of mine and author of uh, the book, Drinking with Men, amazing writer, amazing thinker. She, she's very, um, fascinated by shakers and, and, um, has told me most of what I've just repeated to you. And so she is my, my expert <laughs> on this. I don't actually know. I'm just, but I, but I guess what I'm saying is that coming from a religious background myself, I'm interested in, um, the fact that a lot of religious traditions don't seem to care that much about the food. And, yeah. and so, but John Kwan really did. It really does. And and that temple cuisine tradition throughout Asia is just absolutely uh, uh, a gift to the world. It's beautiful food. Yeah. And it, it's interesting how good we felt. I mean, I am not vegan. Probably like physically, not. like good. Yeah. Not like just like, ooh, good. Like the food tastes good. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is like after a few days of eating this way, uh, I felt lighter and brighter and clearer. And really? Calmer. Yeah, I really did. And I've had moments where I've eaten vegan for a week or two, just kind of as an experiment or because I was writing about it. I'll give the vegans this. I usually do feel better and my skin tends to clear up. And uh, I'm not one to ever pick a lane. And this may go back to religion too. I may have a kind of wariness about belief systems. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptic. I'm a skeptic, you know? Yeah. So I'm not one to say, I now am a vegan. It's just, it's hard for me to, um, to pick a particular do- dogma, a particular orthodoxy, mm-hmm. and say that's the answer, and then stick to it. It's just it's just sort of not how I'm wired. But I do believe that eating plant based is as often as you can is a good idea. It's better yeah. for the planet and it's better for your body. I mean, all the evidence suggests that. That guy wrote the Blue Zones books. You know about those books? Dan, Dan Butner, right? But- Dan Butner, yeah, Butner. yeah. He, yeah. Um, he, uh, he's a buddy of mine now. And uh, I wrote about him for the Times. And then over over the years, I got to be friends with him. Wonderful person. And he's written about places where people live to 100 years old mm-hmm. or, or older. And not just that, but they, they don't 
tend to have dementia. They don't tend to have diabetes. They remain mobile. They may remain alert. I mean, I don't want to get to a hundred if I'm, you know, no, like I'm a mess. I mean, yeah. I, I would like to get there if there's still some vitality in my life and some sense of community and some sense of intellectual, uh, awareness of, but you know, so there, there's, um, Okinawa and Japan, uh, Sardinia, uh, uh, the it's a place in California too, right? Yeah, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica and Loma Linda, California, uh, which is actually Seventh Day Adventist. This is so weird, man. We keep going back to religion. Back to religion. I don't know what you're doing here, but it's, <laughs> it's so strange. But yeah, the Seventh Day Adventists are um, a particular um, a denomination where they believe in the vegetarian eating, and you know, look. They they tend to live much longer and they live very healthy lives. That, that yeah. should tell you something. But I it's like it's one aspect, right? Like the food. I think they, like he also talks yeah. about like I think like staying yeah. active, community is very important, and and there's a couple of maybe other things. But yeah, yeah definitely vegetarian diet is 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 a key. That's just, it's sort of vegetarian, pescatarian. I mean, okay. these there's a lot of these places. They he's himself pescatarian. But you're absolutely right. It also also has to do with. Um, Ikigai, for instance, to Japan, the sense of purpose, the sense of that your life has meaning. Yeah. Um, my mom paints. She's a painter and she's nearing 80, but she continues to paint every day. And I really see that it gives her purpose in life. And um, she just, she derives satisfaction from it. You know, like for instance, in Okinawa, you know how, what percentage of the older folks have gardens that they tend to? <sighs> High percentage, I'm guessing. Yeah, hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, literally everyone has a home garden, and they tend to it every day. They sometimes do so as community, and to wake up every morning and have some degree of ritual, something that gives you purpose, the nurturing of these these vegetables and herbs and fruits. You know, it keeps you going. Plus, the actual things you grow in the garden are good for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know why, why we went to the blue zones, but there's something to it, you know. Well, I, I think like just from personal experience, right? I have a grandmother, she's 92. Um, she so when COVID started, I believe she was around nine years old and super lucid, active, like I think maybe like two gray hairs. And mm-hmm. she's always been super, super active, not a healthy eater at all. Right. Like she oh. would eat, she smoked for 40 years. She's had oh. a hard life. You know, she went through wars, yeah. lost people. Um, not going to get into too much of that, but just the point is yeah. like not a healthy eater, but yeah. the one thing she's always done is stay extremely, extremely active. She wakes up in the morning. She has purpose. She does stuff. And she's, yeah. she's done that up every single day. Right. COVID started she wasn't able to do as much and i saw her recently and i definitely saw a shift like she's deteriorated a little bit oh, wow. Oh, yeah wow. she's not as sharp she's not as lucid like and that's just when covid started because she just she couldn't go out she couldn't do things and Ooh. i think she started to um you know for lack of a better term just lose her mind a little bit yeah um so i think yeah to, to your point i think staying active is is very very important so interesting. There's going to be a, over time an accounting of all the different casualties of COVID that yeah. that weren't results of the the virus itself, and and there you know the byproducts. Yeah, that podcaster and author Rich Roll. He's he's also become a buddy of mine, and he he's a great dude. And he was telling me, you know, he's he's um, dealt with addiction in his own life and. 
he was telling me that when COVID hit, uh, and and as it as it ground along, it's particularly difficult for people dealing with addiction, because um, you know if if you want to go to um, an AA meeting or you want to go to some uh, um, a, you know a gathering where people are talking about addiction and providing that support, well, suddenly you couldn't you yeah. couldn't actually go to the meetings. You could do them on Zoom, but as we know. It's not the same. It's, it's not, not the, the same. same. You know, you don't have the same as like somebody's hand on your shoulder, somebody looking you in the eye. Um, just the chemistry of, of a room full of people forming a community together. Um, there's so much to that. There's so much nourishment in that. And so um, I think a lot of addicts um, wound up struggling um, much worse than they would have uh, because of that, I mean that's 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 a, a, a realm of casualties that we don't even consider, right? Yeah. It's like um, people stuck in the house so they don't exercise. People stuck in the house so they don't so they start, you know, drinking more or, or you know, and 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 um, it's rough. Yeah, and, and, I mean we're st- you know we're still dealing with it, of course. So. The the news and the politicians, I think, are looking at it in such a. Um... I don't know, such a, a rudimentary fashion. It's just like, who's getting sick? The people that are dying, which is obvious. I, I, I got sick last year. I, I think I was actually one of the first people in New York. I was like in March of 2020. Oh, wow. So very early on, wow. which all those things are sad, but like, you're not looking at people who's lost their businesses, people who perhaps committed suicide or domestic abuse or the loneliness yeah. epidemic or all these yeah. other things that have, you know, the, the by effects of this disaster that is covid and i don't know that's just not talked about and enough i think you're absolutely right there's so many other things so many other things you know and and there, there are people like well i did my pandemic pivot or i've 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 um reevaluated my life and its direction that's wonderful mm-hmm. mazel tov you know like <laughs> yeah. you know but it's like that's not that didn't happen for everyone yeah some exactly people, some some people went south some people aren't going to recover, mm-hmm. you know, and the losses are still incomprehensible. They're still incomprehensible. I mean, one of the, one of the early losses to, to the virus itself, to COVID was Floyd Cardoz, the, the chef, uh, Indian American chef. Um, oh, I remember. After, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely trailblazing figure, a creative, a flavor genius, really. I mean, and a wonderful man, a wonderful person, unbelievably warm and hospitable and caring. And I mean, I still know, I wasn't a close friend of his, but I certainly hung out with Floyd a few times and had great admiration for him and just loved seeing his face, loved seeing his smile. And I, it's, it's crushing. Just that one loss itself is something that a lot of people in the food world still haven't fully processed. The idea that Floyd isn't here. That's just one of hundreds of thousands of losses and, and the, the 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 gaping hole that leaves is is just we haven't really processed that. It's like a war, you know. It's like a cataclysm. So not to not to wind down on such a sad note, but it is it is underpinning a lot of where we are now, and the way that and the and it's why a lot of the days are so murky and so. Uh, you know, like there's this underlying melancholy. There just is because this death surrounds us still. Uh, so anyway, 
Yeah. I think initially everyone, we were kidding ourselves like, oh, this is great. Everything's on Zoom. We get to stay home. We don't have to go into work. <laughs> there was this like yeah. almost like happiness that came with it. Like, oh, we can do all these cool things online and, and where everything's shifting to online. But, you know, as we talked about, community is a big part of things. And, and I felt it very much so as well, um, being an immigrant here, not having my family, not having my friends, oh. and, and then being isolated up in, we're in Connecticut now. So, oh. you know, away from a lot of people back in New York as well. We need human connection. We need to see other people. We need to be in communities and, and, and hug each other and look at yeah. another person in the eye and share beer or wine. Like we need those things. And there's just no, no amount of technology is going to transform us into something else, I think, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I went back to LA, uh, I was telling you, I went to these various restaurants and one of the restaurants I went to, Parks Barbecue, this Korean barbecue place, I met up with um, Betty Halleck, who's a tremendous uh, food writer. She worked at the Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Magazine. She has done four cookbooks. And she is my colleague at a company called Round Glass, where we work now. I work for like basically a wellness company founded by a guy named Sunny Singh, this entrepreneur originally from India and now lives in the Seattle area. Anyway, I essentially hired Betty um, months ago. I was thrilled that she came aboard, but I'd never met her. I mean, we're working for months together, like yeah. building the project together. Uh, and and uh, we, as far as I know, I mean, I don't, uh, unless we just sort of passed once at, a, at a, an event or something, we'd never really had a conversation in person. And so she joined me and my older kids at, at Parks Barbecue, as did Fabian Toback, who's a producer of High in the Hog, who's also working with us. And um, God, just to see them in person was everything. Yeah. It was just, it was, it's, it's like, you know, people tell, well, I don't know if I'll ever go back to the office. I'm like, God damn it. I want to go back to the office so bad. Can, <laughs> we, build it? Can we build an office? Because <laughs> I want to interact with my work colleagues in that way. We make so much progress so quickly yeah. by just looking each other in the eye and, and not having to set up a whole zoom meeting to, to, to reach some conclusion, like you can, you can reach conclusions in five minutes that seem to take five days in this new environment, yeah. you know? And you also, there's a, there was a kind of chemical reaction in terms of a real human conversation where you start to come up with ideas that I don't think would surface in a zoom environment. It, I, I really, I mean, a lot of my great, I don't know, you know, this is, I mean, this is weird. I, I don't want to take all your day here, but this is weird. Like when I was at the New York times, at one point, I was I sat near Julia Moskin, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer at the New York Times food section, and uh, the the other writers at the food section, the New York Times, Melissa Clark, Kim Severson, Julia Moskin, they're like my sisters. Okay, yeah. like they're family to me. Basically, I love them. And uh, at one point, I said to Julia, "You know, it's funny. This whole new Nordic movement is here in New York, and I haven't actually been to any of the restaurants." At that point, this is. 2013, maybe I'd never been to Asuka. I'd never been to Luxus. There were a bunch of them, right? And they were kind of influenced by Noma in Copenhagen. And in some cases, actually, people working at them had worked at Noma in Copenhagen. Like Luxus was run by a guy named Daniel Burns, who had been the pastry chef at Noma. And um, I said, uh, 
I, I, I don't know why. I, I, I don't seem to seek out these restaurants. They sound weird to me. Like they, they're, they're, they use lichen and, and, and sea, sea moss and stuff. And, and, <laughs> you know, um, all these strange berries. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, and she's like, well, you should write about that. You should write about how you're, you're, these, these restaurants kind of deflect you and, and you, and maybe a kind of funny piece about how this is the hottest new trend in food and you've avoided it. Right. Yeah. And she was absolutely right. Great instinct. That happened because we were in the office together. We yeah. were talking, we were bullshitting together. Mm-hmm. I went and wrote the article. It was funny. It was, it was a good piece, a good piece of writing. I ended up going to all the restaurants to see what they're really about and see what I had sort of misunderstood about them. Um, and lo and behold, I believe that Rene Redzepi of Noma read that story in the New York Times. I don't see how he would have not read that story. And he soon reached out to me after that, and we met, which led to our traveling through Mexico, which led years later to the book Hungry. So, you see yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. It's the butterfly effect, man. Exactly, it's exactly. Like, I have this bullshit conversation with brilliant Julie Moskin just hanging out. And that leads to this article, which leads to another article, which leads to this book that becomes like the thing I'm most proud of creatively. That and the John Kwan story are probably my proudest moments. And my Keanu Reeves profile from details back in the day, if you can look it up. Now that is a work of art. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, and and so I really miss offices because I think that that kind of uh, dynamism leads to great work and just gets us out of it gets us out of our heads okay we're all stuck in our damn heads right now no that was amazing insight because again if we're the reason you go on a zoom call is because there's a meeting is because you have to discuss something but that those intimate moments where you're just bullshitting with a friend or you're talking about something and you're spitballing and some idea comes up like that's very difficult to to replicate on on zoom you know because you you're not there with them physically yeah, that's that's super interesting insight. Yeah. You well, often don't follow up with that next thing, you know, like exactly. it, but a lot of times in the Zoom conversation, you don't do that thing where you, you keep going, you take it further, and something that starts as a joke winds up becoming an actual action item, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um a lot of great journalism, you know, begins as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, what would happen if, you know, and then, and then you start asking a question and it leads to something that turns out to be more serious and you didn't, you hadn't really considered that. So, um, yeah, I think entrepreneur, entrepreneurism is, is kind of similar. You're like, well, if we could fix this with that, or how come no one's come up with that? Or this is a problem. Why is no one addressing it? And then you start <laughs> to kind of think about like, oh, maybe I could do a service or a product, but yeah, that it's, it's, it's similar. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Well, Jeff, this was a lot of fun. It was fun, man. Thanks yeah, I, I appreciate the time today. Um, plugs, where can people find you, find the book? Just oh. let the audience know. Oh, golly. Uh, well, the book's called Hungry, um, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. Um, you can find it all over the place. I mean, I, I, I love when people buy it from Now Serving, which is a great bookstore in Los Angeles. 
It is a basically a food book store. It's a, mostly carries cookbooks and other food memoirs and stuff. And I believe they have signed copies. So if you go to Now Serving's website, you can probably order one. I also love Powell's bookstore in uh, Portland, Oregon. I love Portland. Powell's is a great American institution. Mm-hmm. Um, any independent bookstore, you know. I mean, there are other places you can buy it, of there, course, and that's fine. But I, 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 <laughs> I do, a small I company named Amazon. Yeah. You could probably find it there. You do you. I'm yeah. not going to be pious about it, but I, but I, I love supporting independent bookstores. In fact, these books of poetry I mentioned, the Jane Hirschfield one and the August Kleinsoller one, I was drop, dropping my daughter off at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, where she's in, in college, and I had some free time. I wandered in this little bookstore, and I basically bought the books to support the plates. I mean, a lot of why I buy the poetry books is because they nourish me, but I also want to, basically, it's almost like, and we're going back to religion again, but it's like (laughs) a tithe, you know? It's like a tithe. It's like um, a little portion of my income that I give to my church, and my church is independent bookstores. So they really, that is, that is truly my, my church. So we're going to uh, have to do a follow-up episode all about religion. That will be episode <laughs> number two. <laughs> you really brought out a lot of insight in me. I'm suddenly realizing that I, I think religion continues to drive to, to, to be my engine, even though I've never really acknowledged that. So this is weird. I got a lot to, uh, to uh, gnaw on now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, cool. So guys go, Check out the book. Go buy it. Uh, also online, Instagram and Twitter. You're uh, you're active there, right? I'm, I don't do Twitter anymore. No Twitter. No, I'm at Instagram. The Gordonier. I'm at the Gordonier. So T H E the, and then G O R D I N I E R. No, I gave up on Twitter, man. It's just too toxic for me. I, it's bit. not healthy for me. It was the same time I stopped drinking. I just sort of I don't want this like toxicity in my life and i think a lot of intelligent things are expressed there a lot of good questions come up um and uh some people are extraordinarily skilled at it i'm not (laughs) i'm not i do a tweet nobody retweets it nobody cares it was like it was like a tree falling in the forest and nobody hears it i just waste my time nobody likes what i have to say and and the only time I would get any traction is if I really piled on the hate. Like if oh, I would, yeah. like, well, the algorithm loves that, right? Yeah, people would just flip out. Like at one point, I made, I made, I did a tweet about how I hate flavored whiskeys, which mm-hmm. which I do. Like I mean, whiskey, it, bourbon, you know, single malt, whatever. It's got plenty of flavor. Yeah, it's got plenty of flavor. It's all about flavor, man. You don't actually need to add cinnamon flavor to it, or you know, barbecue flavor to it or some stupid thing and i I was starting to see these these flavored bourbons and whatnot so i i I, and i was truly aggrieved i really think (laughs) that is an offense i actually think (laughs) disgusting and offensive to do to do that to whiskey um considering how good it is it isn't me it's just a horrible market marketplace ploy right well, man, when I tweeted about that, oh my God, suddenly they all came out of the woodwork. Everybody's retweeting me and commenting and like, there he is. There's Jeff. <laughs> and I was like, wow. So that's what it takes. You just got to hate on something. But, yep. you know, I don't want to be that guy. I just, don't, I'm just too much of a hippie deep down. I don't, I just want to spread the love, man. I don't want to, I don't want to be like out there hating on things all the time. I, I don't really understand the, the um, end result, you know, so uh yeah i do facebook i do instagram you know what you know where the secret power is tell me 
LinkedIn. <laughs> LinkedIn? No, man. <laughs> You'd be amazed. Because most of the people on LinkedIn, what they post is career stuff. Correct. And they just they just kind of post their own professional updates. I've got a new job or something. Isn't it a lot of like patting people, like people patting themselves on the back and, and I don't know. Yeah. But if you post, like when I was at Esquire, if I posted one of my Esquire articles at LinkedIn, which you can post articles just like you do at Facebook. Yeah. I would come back a day later and I'd had 12,000 views on the thing. Really? Yeah. Which is not bad. I mean, like, it, particularly when it just, I, I, it, it would have a, 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 you know, a tally of how many hits it got. And I, and I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I think those people at LinkedIn are just starved for fun, man. They're just like, <laughs> they're just like, oh my God, something funny. Food. Yes, yeah, food. <laughs> a food story. I'm totally going to read this. It's like, you, you have a marketplace opening at LinkedIn. Facebook, it's glutted with this. But yeah. over at LinkedIn, they're just, they're just like, stuck in a boring meeting basically and somebody came in with cake yeah. they're just so psyched i want some cake um so uh i'm just just between us yes <laughs> <laughs> well guys you heard it here first an untapped social media network linkedin go go try use it you never know i don't have linkedin but i'll, I'll you know i'll have to take your word for it get on it man it's not as square <laughs> as you think it's where the action is linkedin <laughs> 2021 it's where the action is uh it's right. good well man this was a lot of fun i really appreciate your time today hopefully we'll get to do another one in the future and that. uh yeah man thanks again i really appreciate thank it thank you see you around bye